0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series in the Book of Colossians. We will take a couple of weeks to do some topical episodes before we jump into our new series on the Book of James please do head over and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We just began last week, a new series on the topic of baptism with Alistair Roberts. And previously we have series on how to read the Bible, liturgy and work, the tabernacle and temple, and more recently, a theology of music. We also hope to see many of you this summer on July 18th and 19th here in Birmingham, Alabama for our Theopolitan ministry conference. And the topic of that conference this year is victory and hope. For more details about that event, Please check out the links in the show notes. As always, we really hope that you enjoy this discussion over this text, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lighthart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Colossians chapter 4.
1: Welcome to the Theophilus Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for joining particularly this series of studies in the letter of Paul to Colossians. We've been looking at this for the last couple of months, and we're coming to the end. This will be our final podcast on Colossians. We're looking at the most of chapter 4. We looked at the first part of chapter 4 last time, along with the other instructions that Paul gives to household members. Chapter 4, verse 1 addresses masters, but then from verse 2 on, he begins giving more general instructions to everyone in the Colossian church, and then he ends as he often does with a series of greetings. And that's the section that we'll be we'll be looking at this week. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take uh, some time off from new podcasts. You'll hear some old podcasts. Uh, Brian's going to dig some things up from the archives and and repost them. And then when we come back in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting in on the letter of James. Jeff has recently finished his and published his commentary on James, and so. We're looking forward to discussing that with him since he spent uh, a good bit of time working on that commentary. We look forward to working through that with him. So a couple of things I want to highlight about about the beginning section of Colossians 4. Paul, after uh, giving these instructions to masters, urges the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer. That's terminology that's used in Acts when it talks about the early church in Jerusalem devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and devoting themselves to break, breaking of bread, devoting themselves to prayer. It's that same, that same term. There's an overtone of persistence and continuation, perhaps an overtone that uh, connects with the Old Testament sacrifices and offering of incense. Uh, there are certain things that are done inside the sanctuaries of the Old Testament that are to mead offerings or to mead activities, continuous activities, Incense is supposed to rise continuously. The smoke of of offerings is supposed to rise continuously, and there's some connotation of that that uh, is here in Paul's exhortation. So he ex- exhorts them to prayer, and that's this is not the first time that Paul has mentioned prayer in Colossians. In fact, the letter starts with Paul describing his own prayer for the Colossians. So in chapter one verse three, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And then he reminds them of how they received the gospel. And then verse nine again, for this reason, also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the letter begins with Paul praying for the Colossians, praying for their maturity, praying for their increase in knowledge. And it ends with Paul turning that around and asking for prayer on his behalf. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. And specifically, he asks for prayer for him, verse 3 of chapter 4, praying at the same time for us as well. So there's this reciprocity in this cycle of prayer. Paul is praying for the Colossians that they would mature. And part of the effect of that is that their prayers will be more effective and more diligent as they pray for Paul, who continues to pray for them. And as they mature, they continue to pray for Paul. And so we have this kind of this cycle of prayer that is this exchange of the gift of prayer that's uh, enclosing the letter and that really constitutes the life of the church in important ways. Uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight was the emphasis throughout this the early verses of chapter four on the word or on speech. The specific prayer that Paul asked for is a prayer that the word of God, uh, there would be an open door for the word of God. Paul prays, i asked for prayer so that he can uh, speak and reveal what he ought to speak in verse 4. He talks about the uh, Colossians and their speech in verse 6. Let your word be seasoned with salt, or be with grace seasoned, as it were, with salt. Uh, when he talks about the, the greetings, he talks about the, uh, the two uh, men who are carrying the letter that he's delivering to the Colossians from his place of imprisonment. Uh, and that's described as the word that he's bringing the or word that he's sending through them or as uh, knowledge that he's that he's conveying to the Colossians. So you have this reciprocity in the cycle of prayer between Paul and the Colossians. prayers going back and back going back and forth for each other and the effect of that is to empower the word of God to go forth from Paul uh, and also to give the Colossians proper speech and proper conduct, both in the church and among those who are outside. Uh, So, word and prayer are two of the things that are being emphasized here at the end of the book, uh, as the kind of supports for uh, what Paul is doing and supports for the continuing life and maturation of the church at Colossae.
2: The instruction to be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving is an interesting one. When we Continuum prayer, we can often fail to have that attendant watchfulness, that attentiveness to the signs of God's work, even in those small things, and uh, thanksgiving that accompanies it to the many ways in which we have received answers to our prayer. When we think about prayer, often we think primarily about petition and don't think about these practices and forms of thanksgiving that should go side by side with it.
3: Alistair, what do you think um, is meant by that term watchful? I notice that it occurs other places too. Remember Jesus uh, told his disciples to watch and pray that they may not enter into temptation. Is this something you do while you're praying? It seems like it is that you're being watchful in your praying does this possibly also refer to what might happen um, when you're dealing with prayers that are made by other people? So, for example, in the assembly, you're listening to someone else, but you're not listening. You're not being watchful about what they're saying. Um, or maybe when the congregation is reciting prayers together, maybe you're not watchful. I'm just, I'm kind of curious to, to know practically what you all think that means.
2: My reading of it would be, first of all, the prayer is continuous. So the watchfulness is a sort of vigilance that can go with that. And also an attentiveness. When we think about praying for particular things, often we can be inattentive to the different ways in which those prayers might be answered. Um, we're so focused upon um, the duty of prayer that we don't actually consider the opportunities that have been put before us that we should take in order for those prayers to be realized, or we're praying against certain threats and we're not vigilant enough against those threats in our uh, attendant practice. And so I'd see this watchfulness as a sort of expectancy, vigilance, um, attentiveness to the works of God and other The activities of Satan, for instance, in our society and in our lives that would have impact upon the realization of our prayers. And so that expectation that we will have our prayers answered, that desire that they would be answered will, I think, come to produce a sort of watchfulness. And that watchfulness is something that maybe we don't practice as much as we ought to.
1: I think that's that's all correct. I would add a couple of additional dimensions that I think are there. One one is I there's a perhaps a note of um serving as guard. You're watchful, not uh, in the sense that you're paying attention to threats, paying attention to dangers, and that the and prayer is the means by which you guard. So you're playing a kind of adamic priestly role in prayer. So what Paul would be doing with, with with his prayers for the various churches, he's trying to guard them from the serpents who would come in and, and uh, seduce the bride. I also think of, uh, I mean, the word can be wakefulness. I think of uh, Jesus not only instructing the apostles to be watch and pray, but also Jesus himself uh, spending entire nights in prayer. And then link that linking up with the uh, various Psalms that talk about, where David talks about being crying out to the Lord in the middle of the night. Um, so, yeah, I think Alistair is right that it has this connotation of continuous, continuous prayer—an exhortation that Paul gives elsewhere: pray continuously. And it, uh, with those Psalms and Jesus' example in the background, it has—you know—you have a kind of day and night kind of devotion to prayer that should uh, characterize characterize the church. Yeah, that would also fit with just the other way in which
3: this word is used by um, the apostle and by others it just means stay awake, it means don't fall asleep. So it means don't stop um, praying. I don't think it means, uh, I think it means pray regularly, pray consistently, um, yeah. don't fall asleep with
1: regard to your duty and the privilege of, of prayer. Uh, David Fields, in, in the courses he's done at Theopolis, has placed a lot of emphasis on this, this kind of passage in the New Testament, and pointed out how often the New Testament urges us to stay awake. And he's taking that as an attitude of prayer, but just as, a, as an attitude in life. We, we kind of sleepwalk through life. And there's, you know, he's picking up on some of the cultural trends that are coming from outside of Christianity, you know, notions of mindfulness and alertness that uh, sometimes come from Eastern religions. But he's pointing out that this, it's there they're in Scripture too, that we're supposed to be mindful of what's happening around us, mindful of needs, mindful of uh, God's goodness in the world, and we're not supposed to be just kind of groping our way through life and stumbling our way through life. One of the things that Paul asked for is um, prayer that the Word of God would have an open door, that God would open a door for the Word. Uh, That's been taken in a a number of different ways. That uh, Paul's in prison you know, is he asking them for, to pray for his release so that the word can penetrate outside the prison doors? Uh, it could be a door that opens the opposite way. Acts talks about this, that God has opened a door for the Gentiles to come in. The connection that i noticed that I think provides a, a, a different perspective on this is the the uh, description of, of Cyrus in uh, Isaiah 45. Isaiah uh, uh, Cyrus is set up as the, the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's servant. And no door is going to be closed to him. He'll be able to burst through any closed gates of any city. He'll be able to conquer. And I think that uh, it could have that kind of connotation that the, the word of God in the word of God in Acts has this kind of conquering power. It keeps spreading in spite of opposition, in spite of attempts to arrest it. The apostles keep speaking, and the word can't be stopped. Uh, and it bursts down every barrier and keeps spreading. From Jerusalem to Judea it spreads to Samaria it spreads to Gentiles it spreads to Rome and Jesus as the great emperor his word is the word that's going to open doors and uh, and continue to conquer and and uh, until until the knowledge of the Lord is spread throughout the world
2: you get a similar sense of this I think in places like second Timothy 2 verse nine when Paul talks about the fact that even though he's on he's in prison on account of it the Word of God is not bound and Elsewhere in Philippians, he speaks about the manner in which his imprisonment has opened unexpected doors for the gospel. This expectancy that the gospel will break through any one of the barriers placed in its way, I think is an element of Paul's teaching that I always find deeply encouraging when I read the epistles. Paul has this deep confidence that The Lord will open different ways for the gospel and they will often be the most unexpected ones. You can't necessarily predict how something's going to play out. And I often feel this about our our lives. We don't know what ventures that we engage in will be fruitful. We don't know what um, connections we might have when we um, go to a particular location or engage in a particular activity. There's a sort of sacred serendipity to the way in which the gospel is, the way is forged for it. And our involvement in that can occur through planning and other things like that, but primarily prayer that the Lord would act in order to open this way for the gospel. And that, I think, also um, gives a sense of the greater participation that people could have within the work of Paul. Paul talks a lot to the various churches to whom he writes and he speaks about his prayers for them, but he also asks for prayers in return. And at this sort of juncture, we feel something of the investment that a church like um, that of Colossians would have within the ministry of Paul. And Paul wants to encourage that to make them feel that this is their ministry too, and that their prayer is not just accidental, it's absolutely essential to the opening up of new avenues.
3: Yeah, I find it fascinating that there's a bit of vulnerability here expressed by the apostle because he wants them to pray that in his declaration of the mystery of Christ, he would be able to make it clear uh, and speak how he ought to speak. Uh, I think we sometimes think of Paul being, he's got the Holy Spirit. hes uh, He sits down to write something. Uh, he's got all this confidence, and yet here he like you said, Alistair, he includes these people in Colossi in his mission. It actually, in his declaration of the word of God, he there's a, there's a codependence here. You need to pray for me, or I won't be able to make it clear. And I won't be able to speak as I ought to speak, unless I know these churches are teaming up with me and praying for me. That also, just in the pastorate, you think about that as a pastor. I, you know, sitting here at my desk preparing for a sermon, you know, uh, on Sunday. And sometimes I forget that I want people praying for me. Uh, and if I don't have people actually asking God to pray for me, this kind of web of interaction, communal interaction, then I'm not likely to be able to speak as clearly as I need to, or say what I ought to say. And Paul, even the apostle Paul, recognizes this is necessary uh, for his ministry.
1: Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really good, uh, uh, Jeff. I, I'd add a, maybe another layer of what I may be going on in verses three and four here. First of all, the content of what he's speaking is the mystery of Christ, which is. That term he's used several times in the term mysteries used several times in Colossians. It's the hidden things from the foundations of the world that have now been revealed in Christ, Christ in you, or Christ among you, the hope of glory, Christ among the Gentiles as hope, Christ is our life. Those are the kinds of things that have been revealed. uh, And that's the, those are the hidden things that have now been brought to light. And uh, verse four, when he says, make it clear the Greek word behind that is uh, "phaneroao," which is to make manifest, make manifest. Which it fits with the, it's it's a continuation of the thought of the mystery, something that has been hidden, and th- what Paul is praying for is that what he speaks would be spoken clearly, but that in his speaking, that mystery would be unveiled. And then th- maybe this is overreading, but uh, the last part of verse four, it's um, he he prays that in order that it it will be evident or i will i will make manifest as i ought to speak then the greek word is day the term is used in in various contexts to refer to a kind of divine necessity so when when jesus talks to his disciples at at his resurrection and tells them wasn't it necessary for the christ to suffer and enter into his glory and acts sometimes talks about things that had to happen things that it was necessary to happen because god had Planned it beforehand, so I wonder if there's that overtone here too, that it's through their prayers that this kind of pre-planned spread of the mystery, this pre-planned unveiling of the mystery, is going to is going to uh, go to the Gentiles, is going to go to the world. So it's that's not. I I agree that there's a kind of personal note here too, but it it seems also to be involved with um, the content of what he's saying. He's asking that through his preaching, the mystery that he has to proclaim will be unveiled and that what has been predestined to occur will occur in his preaching and teaching, that that that, that mystery will take effect. Just to underline what
4: Jeff was saying, I think that, that um, the way in which Paul uh, calls people to pray for him and to support him in more practical ways is just a, a really consistent emphasis of, of the New Testament. Um a few years ago, I went through the New Testament and made a just a long list of every imperative from a writer to his readers and kind of categorized them afterwards. And by far the most um, common, like by many times, was the exhortation for people to pray and be involved in different um, missionary activities. And, um, yeah, I, I just think that's a really important thing to stress. You know, most people... Probably don't see, for instance, missionary prayer meetings at church as like you know the most exciting thing to be um, involved in, um, and yet there's such a consistent call to to do that kind of thing throughout the the New Testament.
1: How do you understand uh, the connection between Paul's speaking of the mystery of Christ in verse three and his imprisonment? I can think of a number of ways that. Uh, he claims that it's the mystery of Christ that's that's locked that's gotten gotten him locked up. So I can think of different dimensions of that. I mean, it's, it's enraged the Jews and the Jews have opposed him and manipulated things so that he gets locked up by the Romans. Or is it because of some threat that the mystery of Christ poses to Rome? How is the message of the mystery? How is that the basis for his imprisonment? How do you how do you understand that?
4: My first thought, Peter, for whatever it's worth, was was the same as yours in terms of um, I was thinking of the way in which Paul frames um, his case, you know, um, the way in which he basically says to to the law courts, look, I'm up here on sectarian charges. You know, this is a inner Jewish dispute about the nature of the resurrection. Um, that, that's why I'm here. And that was the first thing that came to my mind, that um, the resurrection of one individual um, to a glorified state rather than a belief in a general resurrection. Um, that, he could plausibly say, is, is the reason why he's in prison. Uh,
3: this isn't the whole of it, but remember back in end of Colossians, in beginning of Colossians 2, where Paul's actually talking about the mystery, uh, the mystery that was hidden, is the inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the oneness of the new church. The uh, passing away of the bipolar kind of humanity, Jew and Gentile, and uh, of course, it, in his in his arrest and then imprisonment and being sent to Rome, uh, that's that was the catalyst. Uh, remember in Jerusalem why the Jews, uh, you know, rose up against him because of his ministry to the Gentiles and his and them thinking that he actually had a Gentile with him coming into the temple. So I think there's at least that layer to it.
1: Yeah. So in that case, there would be a very direct connection. It's it's not just a generic connection. There's, he specifically was arrested for acting on his convictions concerning the mystery that he's preaching. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, that, yeah that's, uh, that's, that's really helpful. See, as Paul goes on, he's uh, giving instructions to the Colossians. He's asked them to pray. Then he's in, in instructing them about their walk in verse five and their speech in verse six, um, and it seems to be both. Both of these are directed toward outsiders. Uh, verse five is explicitly walk with wisdom toward outsiders, and verse six is uh, seems to have the same audience in mind. So both, both in walk and speech, they're supposed to act with grace and wisdom uh, so that they can. Uh, well, as as the phrase goes, that they can redeem the time or make the most of the opportunity, as my New American Standard puts it,
4: or respond as, as appropriately to each person. Quick comment on this idea of redeeming the time. It feels to me that we've got a really a, just a cluster of priestly type uh, words here, priestly vocabulary and and ideas. Um, Peter mentioned the way in which this continue steadfastly in prayer um resonates with the notion of the tamid this sort of continual sacrifice to um to make clear you know this uh roto is is often to do with sort of shining you know it's a similar word for a, a torch and so on we've got redeeming um the time and then sort of uh speech being seasoned with salt in uh in the next verse in verse six and, uh, i just wonder if we've got uh, a lot of images here connected with uh, priestly service that we may are kind of stick together in some way.
1: So would this be a variation on some uh, notion of, of uh, living sacrifice? Romans I mean, twelve, the salt would 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 fit with that. Salt is also a component of the incense that was used in the tabernacle. So it, then incense is a symbol of prayer. Um, so. Is that is that the kind of thing you're thinking of, James?
4: Yeah, it is in part. And then I guess I was also thinking in in part of the more evangelistic um, sense of priestly activities, the way in which the tribe of Levi would be really just dispersed through Israel, and that the you know the uh, city was to have a a priest in its gates, you know, who was presumably to hold forth uh, the word of life and, and instruct people. So um, I was thinking sacrificially, but also with a, with a evangelistic slant to it.
2: I think as modern people, it's very easy for us to read the expression, making the best use, to, use of the time, and think about that merely in terms of filling our diaries with things and making sure that we're always maximising Christian activities that we participate in. And yet... It seems to me that particularly in Ephesians 5, which is a similar passage, but also here, there's a sense of a redeeming of time in a far thicker way. And so in days that are dominated by wickedness, in days that are not yet days of our Lord's coming, we must act accordingly. And so there are ways in which, for instance, we must practice watchfulness, looking towards the coming day of the Lord, and that expectancy with which we fill our time is one way in which we redeem redeem these days. They become days not just of Christ's absence, but days filled with waiting and expectancy. Um, we might think about the way that we redeem our time by the practice of patterns of Sabbath, by rest, and by Thanksgiving, which gives order and a sort of rhythm to our lives. We can think about the morning and evening prayer that we practice, or we might think about the way that we recall the great works of God in the past and look to future horizons of his activity. We might think about the ways in which um, we restore the patterns of a healthy time. So in ages of decadence, we sacrifice for the future. In an age of revolution, we honour father and mother and those who have gone before us. And that redeeming of the time, I think, is something that Christians are called to that goes far beyond just the filling of our days with lots of activities. Um, The practice, I think, particularly of um, some gathering together as the people of the Lord on the Lord's Day, and the way that that is a time of expectancy, a time where we step back from ordinary time, is perhaps the primary way in which our time is redeemed. It becomes connected with something salvific and is not just this time of darkness and emptiness
1: and um, absence. Yes, yeah, so uh, I guess you don't think um, time is money would be a good, would be a good uh, gloss or interpretation of the phrase. <laughs> you think it means something other than that? You know, t- t- not time is commodified. That, that is kind of a popular way to take it, though. Um, I think you're right that the, the coming of the Lord is looming, and particularly if you put this back in the first century context and as we emphasize a lot in various contexts, the first century church is living under the doom that Jesus has pronounced about Jerusalem, but also about the shaking of the world that's going to happen. So redeeming the moment has partly to do with the urgency of the time, specific time that they're living in. But I mean, that could you could apply that to uh urgency of all kinds of other times. The question I had, I came across an interesting article by a Stanley Hauerwas, where he's talking about redeeming the time more in terms of redeeming and reconciling and um, bringing back into coherence uh, things that have been broken, time that has been frayed and, and scattered. So, uh, forgiveness is an act of redeeming the time because uh, you have something that has been broken, a relationship that has been broken. And by an act of forgiveness, there's a restoration of relationship and, and what, what was what was done in the past no longer dominates what's done in the present and the future. Or you think about, uh, you know, international conflicts that are, or you know, civil civil wars that lead to reconciliation. You know, the, some of the, some of the stories you hear out of uh, Rwanda and Burundi over the last, uh, last decade or so, where there've been, there've been, uh, efforts and su- sometimes successful efforts made to heal the, the tribal animosities, So there's a, it's redeeming the time because you don't get stuck in these past wrongs and it opens up a possibility for a different kind of future Uh, without that, without those acts of forgiveness and reconciliation, you're constantly dominated by, I mean, just, you know, personally, somebody who's, who's been wronged in the past that can't forgive their parents or can't forgive what uh, some school teacher did to them when they were, when they were five, their lives are dominated by something that has uh, happened long ago. Forgiveness breaks that impasse and opens up possibility for something something new. Do you think that would you think that that's within the realm of what Paul's talking about? Part part of the reason for saying that is that the the term re- redeem here or making the most of really does mean redeem in most of its uses in the New Testament. It's not it's not a uh, it's not a taking advantage idea. It's a, a restoring.
2: Yes, I think that's correct. I think I would be reading the expression very much against the backdrop. Ephesians 5, where Paul is working with an extended analogy of light and darkness. And so the light has dawned with Christ. And so the charge is awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then Christ's light brings things to light. And then as a result, we are supposed to be children of the light who walk in that way and bring things to light around us. And we are not just those who are illuminated. We are those who our light in the Lord. And now that brings to light shameful things. It is one of the things that provokes us to be engaged in the activities of the light, no longer engaging in getting drunk with wine and debauchery, but those who recognize the evilness of the days and seek to transform that by the light that we bear. And so that can very much be seen in acts of forgiveness and reconciliation. It can be seen in the ways in which by our presence we bring the evil character of certain activities to light and expose by the contrast alone something of the, the wickedness that exists within our days. I think also it's this anticipation of the great dawning of Christ. We have the breaking of the dawn of the eschatological day. And so the way that we live as people of the light anticipates that full dawning of the day of the Lord. And in our presence here and now, we bear witness to that. And so in all of these ways, I think there's some aspect of the redeeming of the time taking place.
3: I think everything you guys said, Peter and Alistair, is true and right and good, theologically accurate, biblically accurate. And yet this passage really is about how they walk toward outsiders. It's about redeeming the time. It's just that is connected with the first clause there. That's just another way of saying, uh, behave wisely toward outsiders. Let your speech be gracious, Season with salt so that you know how to answer each person. Uh, so ultimately what this is about is uh, finding or taking advantage of opportunities uh, that are, that come up in time when you're with outsiders and making sure that you are behaving and speaking in a way that's going to be productive for that. And again, Paul has asked them to pray for him so that he can speak clearly and declare, uncover the mystery of Christ to uh, to everyone. And now he's telling them to, to act, to behave in the same way. He's encouraging them to do what he does, except on a smaller scale in their community. Um, but it's it, it has to do with outsiders um, primarily. Uh, and I, I guess that's the only thing I wanted to kind of bring it back to the text itself and focus on what Paul is saying. I think the other comments about redeeming the time in a broader sense are certainly accurate, um, and true, but this is about how we deal with those who are unbelievers and, um, and, and, and act in appropriate ways in when we're given the opportunity, when the
1: time comes, we'll, will be found faithful. Yeah, that's, that's really good, really good, helpful point. Uh, and it sets up, I think, um, the way that you're seeing an analogy between Paul's apostolic ministry and what he's expecting of the Colossians, Paul is an apostle, and he's got a uh, uh, a, a unique place in the church. He has a he has a distinctive uh, role in the Colossian church, and yet it's not uh, it's not completely other. Uh, he expects everyone to have. He is one who is sent. And uh, he expects them to act like sent ones. And I think that's a good setup for what goes on in the, in the final section of Colossians 4, which is a set of greetings. But I think the, the greetings are more theologically weighty than we sometimes give them credit. And as I, as I look through this, several things stood out to me. One is, it, if I counted correctly, uh, there are 12 names that are here. Uh, not 12 people, because um, Jesus, who is called Justice, is given two names. And Mark is mentioned as sending greetings, but he's identified as Barnabas's cousin, Mark. So he mentions Barnabas. When you total up the number of people, if I've counted correctly, I mean, you can our, our numerology um, gurus can check me and see if I can count. Uh, James knows I can't count, but I think there are tw- I think there are twelve names on the list. So that that num- that numerical, uh, uh, in addition to Paul, Paul is not Paul's not one of the twelve. No, is that what you get, Jeff? No, include Paul and you got 12. Okay. Correct. One, two, three. Yeah.
3: Tychicus, Anesimus, Aristarchus, Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, Archippus, and Paul. That's 12.
1: Was that 12? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Is that 12 people that are mentioned or 12 names? I was was going with the names. Yeah. Okay. Well, 12 names. Yeah. Okay. Good. I can't count, but I'm glad somebody can. But still, you've got the 12. I'm glad, I'm glad that was accurate at least, uh, which, which puts Paul in this position of he's an apostle who is a sent one, one sent with the authority of Jesus. He is sending Tychicus to make known what's happening with him to the Colossian church along with the Onesimus. He has both Jews and Gentiles whom he lists here. Verses 10-11, he mentions Mark and Jesus who is called Justice and describes them as fellow workers for the kingdom who are of the circumcision, singling them out as Jewish, Jewish companions and colleagues, and the, the, the others presumably Gentiles. Uh, besides that, he, he uses the word for encouragement a couple of times, which is related to the, the, uh, the word that's used to describe the spirit, parakletos. Uh, he's uh, mentions the greetings from Jesus, who is called Justice. They proved an encouragement to me. So they're playing the role of the paraclete to Paul. Tychicus is supposed to be in verse 8. Tychicus is supposed to let the Colossians know about Paul's circumstances so they can be encouraged. And that's, again, a, uh, that's a that's a word that's linked to paraclete. So you have all these analogies that put Paul in a position of he's imitating Christ. He's put in a position that is analogous to that of Christ. And as in that position, he's sending, just as Jesus did, He's making things known just as Jesus did. He's providing encouragement just as Jesus did. Uh, and so the that's I think that's a, the, the kind of theological frame that you have at the end of Colossians is of this um kind of a, almost a repetition of the the twelve with Jesus as the uh as the original company of of disciples.
2: There's quite a social mix here as well. We have a large householder in Nympha. A doctor in Luke. Um, we have people with enough financial freedom or support to do the work of the gospel as their full-time work, Tichus, Mark, and Epaphras. And then we have a slave in Onesimus. Um, We see three Jews, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice, and three Gentiles in Paul's fellow workers, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. And it seems that within the work of the early church, there is this cosmopolitan flavor to it. These are not just Jews doing this work, nor is it just people of a particular class. There is quite a variety brought together in this common activity. I think the other thing that's worth noting is the presence of um, Luke. And if this is the Mark who was the author of the second gospel, we have two gospel writers in the same place as Paul. And between them, the three of them, over 60% of the New Testament is written by those three people who are in the same place at the same time. And often people can talk about the communities of the various gospel writers, not so much nowadays, but certainly in sort of New Testament scholarship you'd find in the past, these very distinct, discrete communities that had the character of a particular writer that was And they will be reflected in the issues and the concerns and preoccupations of the various material. We see, I think, in passages like this, something that pushes back against that vision. The church was a highly connected place. The various authors of the New Testament material constantly crossed paths. There were lots of any person within the church, within the early church, would have had a number of different connections to different ones of these authors, and so the material is held together by the fellowship between these men, by the interconnectedness of the church that was formed through their ministry and the exchange of ministers and the circulation of apostles that we see in passages like this. So again,
1: yeah, that's a very good point that, that you have the you have a, a collection that is um, of individuals that matches exactly what Paul says is happening in the renewal of, of the gospel and the renewal of the image of God, which is the union of Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, slave and free, and so on.
3: Maybe it's also instructive to note how God is always mixing things up in the church. I mean, people are coming and going. There's, there's new, new people being introduced, new, new relationships. There's new converts Epaphras is away for a while and he's coming back. There's Onesimus, people change. You know, they might have reason to be suspicious of Mark because of what we read in Acts 12 and 13. But now he gets the approbation of the, of the apostle. So he's, he's approved by him. And I, I noticed too, Demas is mentioned here. But Demas later on in Second Timothy is going to fall away. He's going to forsake Paul remember, having loved the present world. So there's just a lot of change going on in in the church, in these churches. Um, and anybody who is a Christian at Colossae or in any of our churches needs to recognize that fact. Uh, I think sometimes in our churches, we have this nostalgia. Well, we have a nostalgia for the, for the early church as if somehow everything was just perfect and right and nothing ever changed. But we also have a nostalgia, having been a pastor here for 28 years now, um, we kind of look, people look back at the past and think, oh, at, at one time I knew everybody and, and now there's all these new people and everything's changed and, and, uh, and people that I thought were uh, faithful have fallen away uh, and now there's new people that are rising up in leadership and I don't know them very well. Uh, but all of that's going on in the New Testament, <laughs> uh, and, and, and people need to recognize that that's the way God builds his church. Uh, it is always about mixing people up, uh, mixing things up in the church.
2: Tychicus is the bearer of the epistle, and he also is going to bring news to Paul of the Colossians. If we're trying to fit together the chronology of the various letters, It seems likely to me that um, Paul at this time was sending the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon. All of the names that we find in the book of Philemon are also found here apart from Philemon and Aphia. And one of these letters is directly addressed to the church. One is addressed to a particular member of the Colossian church. And the other letter is passed on from another church nearby. Archippus, who is also mentioned in the epistle of Philemon, is here charged to fulfill the ministry that he has received. And it seems that there is a bundle of letters already being sent, joined together here. Some of these private letters like that to Philemon and others are letters for a specific church like that for the Colossians. And Ephesians seems to have more of a character of something of an encyclical that has been shared around a number of different churches in its original form and so already we're seeing something of the orbit of Paul's ministry here the way in which he has a number of people like Tychicus that he's sending out bearing these letters presumably at this time he's also sending back Anesimus. and the fact that Anesimus is told we're told that Anesimus, our faithful and beloved brother is one of you Maybe that's introducing him to the Colossian church. You might otherwise just think about him as the runaway slave of Philemon.
4: We noted as we went through chapter one um, that we have this portrait of Christ who is um, before all things and holding all things together. And um, we've, I think, mentioned various times as we've gone through the letter, the the various things which need to be held together. Um, There is obviously you know, first and foremost, uh, the reconciliation of of us as enemies um, to to God, our father, um, and a more general kind of renewal of creation. Um, There's then the sort of the sticking together of different elements of the church. So whether it's Jew and Gentile, or whether it's the kind of um, the social um, relationships, which are prone to break apart that we thought about earlier uh, in this chapter or even at the end of chapter three, slaves and masters, um, husbands and wives, e- e- etc. There's a great um, pressure um, exerted by society today to, to break some of those relationships apart, to break a family um, apart and so forth. And here then towards the end, it, it feels like there's this um, sort of more of an, an intra-church um, idea that the, there's a, a sticking together of different churches with key individuals who work as kind of ministers to bring news to one or bring a letter to um, another or or to bring sort of comfort and encouragement to Paul or or from Paul. And it just seems like there's this um, uh, ministry of reconciliation, you you could call it, um, salvifically in in, in the first place, but then kind of worked out at multiple um, levels Throughout individuals, throughout families, churches, um, etc., which is just kind of uh, outworking throughout this epistle. Thank you again for
0: enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at TheopolisInstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.